0: Good morning. My name is Jason Barris. I serve on staff here with Redeemer Church of Dubai. Um, Let me turn your attention for just a minute to page three of your bulletin, to the announcements page. As we start a new year next week, we'll be starting again our Redeemer classes, which happen right here at 9 a.m., an hour before our 10 a.m. service. We will be starting two classes, a men's class and a women's class, starting next week at 9 a.m. We would love to have you join us for those classes. At the same time, downstairs, there will be classes for your children, 0 to 9, and classes for your preteens, the Jumpstart class, 10 to 12. And next Thursday night, we will resume our youth ministry, Regeneration, next Thursday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. As we open God's word together, let me go to Him again one more time in prayer. Father, we have gathered this morning to, um, to sing Your praises together, to confess our sins, to hear your Word read, to now hear your Word preached. We pray that as we open your Word together, that your Spirit would be working through me and in the hearts of those that have gathered. We pray that your Word would be seen, to be true, that Christ would be Held up as beautiful, that your gospel would go forth with power, that your word would not return to you empty, but would accomplish the purpose that you have set for it. We pray that you would do these things this morning for the joy of your people and ultimately for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year a common phrase most of us have been saying over these early days of a new year often we say it without really thinking about what the words mean we just say it it's a new year happy new year <clears throat> i like a new year there's something fresh and clean about it something exciting promising about a new year today is my wedding anniversary Thank you. Happy anniversary. I think you should thank my wife for lasting with me that long. We've been married five, five years. I think I like the new year as well, because at the very beginning of the new year, I can remember God's faithfulness and his blessings in marriage and look out with excitement and hope at what another year of marriage would bring. More love, more joy, more shared life together. I think deep down, most of us tend to look out on a new year with hope and optimism at what might be in store for us. I think we try at the beginning of a new year to, even if we're not naturally, to try to be optimistic. And every year of my life has brought with it its share of blessings, its share of surprises, good ones. I know if you had told me New Year's two years ago, at the beginning of 2012, that within eight months I would be living in Dubai, I wouldn't have believed you. But that's exactly what happened. And I have been amazed not only with how God brought our family here so quickly, when we didn't expect it, but how we have experienced such love and joy here at Redeemer Church. God has a way of surprising us year after year with bends in the road like that wonderful blessings and surprises. As you look back over 2013, what are some of those surprises that God brought into your life? What are some of those bends in the road that surprised you, that gave you joy and blessing? I'm sure in your life, like in mine, there are specific surprise blessings you can point to. My wife and I met A new son in July, little Jack. And I love that little guy. What a blessing to welcome new life and then to watch him grow day after day. But I'm sure there are also other surprises that came in 2013 that you weren't expecting. Difficult surprises. Trouble. Trials. Suffering. As Christians... We shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. We shouldn't be surprised by those difficult bends in the road. Jesus promised them to us. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. But suffering usually does catch us by surprise. I once heard the advice of an older pastor, and the advice was this advice to a younger pastor, he said, prepare your people to suffer. Prepare your people to suffer. I think that is one of the jobs of a good pastor, to prepare his people for those difficult bends in the road. And this advice is so important because all Christians will suffer. And if we're going to persevere through suffering with our faith intact at the other end, we need to be ready for it. We need to be prepared. And this is what the New Testament pastor James was doing as he wrote the first chapter of his letter. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, the New Testament letter. James, chapter 1. James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church in its first days. And he was writing this letter to some of his former members some of his former church members who had been scattered throughout the area on account of persecution for their faith, persecution because of the gospel. And as a good pastor, James writes a letter to these early Christians to encourage them and to instruct them about how they should live their lives in this world as God's children. And in the first part of his letter, which we'll be looking at this morning, James is preparing these people to face suffering with an eternal perspective. In July of last year, I preached on the first 12 verses of James 1. And the first 12 verses of James 1 are on the subject of trials. And as we saw then, a short summary, trials are the difficulties and troubles that God brings into the life of the Christian to test the person's faith to demonstrate the quality of faith, and to purify it. God, like a metalworker, like a great goldsmith, brings the fire of trials into our lives to test our faith. First, to see if our faith is real or not, to test its quality, and second, to purify our faith, to burn away the impurities in our lives. And if we are to persevere through the sufferings of trials, we need an eternal perspective. We need, as I said then, far-sighted vision. The ability to look a long way down the road at God's intentions in bringing suffering into our lives. We need to see the eternal good that God is working in our souls through these trials. God's intention in bringing trials into our lives is good he intends for our growth in holiness he intends to prepare us to fit us for heaven do you see that in verse 12 the end of that section blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him Heaven, eternal life, that crown, that reward of life is the reward given by God to the Christian who perseveres through the testing of trials. We'll be looking this morning at the next verses, verses 13 to 18 of James chapter 1. In these verses, James now turns to the subject of temptation. But this subject of temptation is linked, it's it's connected to the subject of trials. I'm going to read these verses out loud as we get started. Follow along with me in your Bibles. And as we get started, I'll start back again with verse 12 to pick up the context. This is God's Word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So this morning, what I believe is the main point of this passage is this. It's in two sentences. If you're taking notes, this is what I think is the main point of this passage. Temptations come during trials, but God doesn't tempt us. That's sentence number one. Temptations come during trials, but God doesn't tempt us. Sentence number two of this main point. So when temptations do come, number one, don't shift the blame for your sin. And number two, don't question God's goodness. Number one, when temptations come, don't shift the blame for your sin. And number two, don't question God's goodness. It's my prayer this morning that as as we look at this passage, through this message, we would understand temptation a little better and that we would see God's goodness a little more clearly. So again, two points. Don't shift the blame for your sin. And don't question God's goodness when you are tempted. So the idea here, as James turns from the subject of trials to temptation, is that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials that God brings into our lives, there will come temptation. A great illustration of this is Jesus in the wilderness. The beginning of his ministry God leads Jesus by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's there for 40 days experiencing a trial. He's in the wilderness. He's fasting. He doesn't eat any food for 40 days. And while God is putting him through this trial, temptations come. Satan comes and tempts Jesus. Satan met him there in the wilderness and tempted him. The temptation did not come from God, but the temptation did come alongside the trial that God had brought. The same thing happens in the life of every Christian when we experience trials. Alongside that trial that God brings will come temptations. With trials, we bring our own set of temptations and sins with us into those trials. And those sins tend to come out during those difficulties and trials, when we're stressed, when we're pressed, when things are difficult, our sin comes out. So during trials and temptations, our theology, what it is that we believe about God, is either on the one hand strengthened, solidified, deepened, or on the other hand, it's shaken. It's shaken. James' desire here, my desire here, is that your theology, your beliefs about God would be big enough, would be deep enough to outlast great suffering. That when great suffering comes, that your faith would not be lost, that your faith would not be shaken. That's my prayer for this sermon, that God would take this passage and build in your minds and hearts the kinds of categories that need to be there so that you would be prepared for great suffering. That you would suffer well as a Christian. Trials will rock you. And they will rock your theology to the core. And your theology must be substantial enough to weather the storm that suffering will bring. So I want to say a couple things at the beginning here about Satan. And his demons, his hosts. Because even though this passage is about temptation... James doesn't mention Satan, though I think the existence of Satan is implied in the passage with that verb, tempted. Now, two points. Number one, Satan is real. He exists. He is the enemy of God and of God's people. And he has with him a host of demons that do his work, do his bidding. A quote from C.S. Lewis on the devil's from his book, Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the devils, are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail an atheist or a magician with the same delight. Satan is real and it's not good to pretend that he doesn't exist. We must be aware that he exists and be aware of his devices. Number two, Satan desires and aims for your eternal destruction. His goal for you is that you would be eternally destroyed. Here's a quote from one Puritan pastor, Thomas Brooks, on Satan's devices. Satan is so full of malice and envy that he will leave no means unattempted, whereby he may make all others eternally miserable with himself. He, being shut out of heaven, makes use of all his power and skill to bring all the sons of men into the same condition and condemnation with himself. This is Satan's goal for you. Now that being said, let's turn again to this passage in our Our first point is this. When you are tempted, don't shift the blame for your sin. Don't shift the blame for your sin. I want you to see this morning from James chapter 1, two trajectories that are here in this passage. Two plans, two goals. There is God's plan for us in our trials. And you can see this trajectory between verses 2 and 3 and verse 12. God brings trials to test our faith so that our faith would grow, so that we would mature, so that we would become more holy, so that at the end of our lives we would experience eternal life, eternal joy, eternal happiness in heaven. That's God's plan for us in bringing trials into our lives. That we would grow, that we would mature, that we would become more holy, and that we would experience finally eternal life in heaven. There's another trajectory going on here in this passage, and that's it's the trajectory that Satan wants us to be on. And it's a trajectory of, it starts with our, our evil desires, our, our, our lusts within us. Those evil desires give birth to sin, sin when it is full grown brings forth Death. There's another trajectory that Satan wants us on, and it's a trajectory of sin. And its final destination, its, its end goal that Satan has for us is eternal death, eternal punishment in the lake of fire with him and with all of his hosts. If we are to persevere through temptation, we need a similar far-sighted view of Sin. We cannot be unaware of where sin ultimately will will lead, of Satan's goals for us. Now, when it comes to temptation and sin, there is in us always a tendency to want to shift the blame for our sin. Let's read again for this first point, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say, when He is tempted, I am being tempted by God; for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when He is Lord and enticed by his own desire. then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. There is a tendency in all of us when it comes to our sin and when it comes to our temptation. To want to shift the blame. To want to point the finger. To want to bring up excuses for why it is that we sin. That really justify ourselves. It was the first impulse of our parents. Adam and Eve in the garden. After they sinned. The first sin. What happened? God came to them. Said what did you do? What does Adam do? He points the finger at his wife. This woman... That you gave me. He points the finger at God. She gave to me and I ate. So then he looks at the woman. And what does the woman do? She points the finger at the serpent. There's a tendency in all of us when it comes to our sin. To not want to take responsibility for our sin. To not really deep down see ourselves as responsible and culpable for our sin. There is even, in our modern conceptions of sin, in our modern conceptions of blame shifting, this belief that we're never ever really responsible for anything that we do. We're always hearing people say, well, you know, it's a person's environment. It's a person's parents. It's a person's genetics. The end of all of it, as we keep pointing the finger at different things and different people, no one ends up being responsible for anything. There's all of this sin and evil in the world, but everyone's pointing the finger somewhere else. Now, all of us do sin and all of us do experience the sin of other people. We are not responsible for other sins, but we are responsible for our own sins. And that's James' point here. So, do you view the problems in your life, do you view the issues that you face as primarily a problem that is outside of you? My circumstances, my environment, the other people around me, Or do you see the problem ultimately as a problem that is inside of you? There's always going to be this tendency inside of us to see the problem is outside and the solution inside. But the Bible tells us that the problem is inside and the solution is outside. The solution is God coming to us, saving us, giving us the righteousness that we need. Who do you blame For your sin. As you think about your sins. Even this week. How do you justify your sins? We all do it. We're all filled with lots of excuses. With lots of fingers to point. Other things. Other people. Do you maybe just dismiss your sin. And not really want to think of it as sin at all. Maybe that's your excuse. Oh it's not a sin. It's. Uh, my personality. It's my temperament. It's not a sin. It's It's just the way I am. Perhaps you blame Satan. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. Satan did it. Satan tempted me. Like Eve in the garden. Maybe you blame your circumstances. I think that's really what's going on in this passage. Maybe you blame your circumstances. If things were a little different, if money wasn't so tight, if my spouse wasn't this way, if my kids weren't this way, if I just had that one thing that, I've, that I want, I wouldn't be sinning. And what this passage shows is when you blame your circumstances, ultimately you're actually blaming God. I think what James is seeing here is As you're in the midst of trials, as you're experiencing great difficulties, there's this tendency to say, the reason I'm sinning, the reason I'm tempted is because of my circumstances. And God, you're sovereign over my circumstances. So ultimately, God, it's your fault that I'm sinning. If you would just fix my circumstances, I wouldn't be tempted. I wouldn't be sinning. We point the finger at God. Who do you blame for your sin? One of my favorite quotes is a quote from G.K. Chesterton. A newspaper editor had asked this question of many famous people in Britain in the early 20th century. The question was, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote to the editors the shortest answer they received. Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with the world. And I think that is the right Christian response. When it comes to sin, when it comes to looking around at what's wrong with the world, what we as Christians have to say is the, what's really wrong with the world is sin. And where does that sin come from? It comes from our human hearts, it comes from my, my human heart. And that's what James says here in verses 13 to 15. Temptation starts with our evil desires, starts with our lusts, our sin in our hearts. That's where it starts. And that temptation moves from our evil desires to sin, and that sin deserves eternal death. Turn with me really quickly to 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John, John is showing us that the solution to our sin isn't blame shifting, it's repentance, it's confession. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and following. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you see our what the proper response to sin must be? What our proper response to sin must be? Not blame shifting, not sweeping it under the carpet, not pointing fingers, not making excuses, not pretending like we're not sinners. No, the solution is confessing our sin, admitting it, seeing it as God sees it, bringing it to him with repentance, with confession. And you know what God does? He takes our sin and He places it on Christ. And He takes Christ's righteousness and He places it on us. And this great exchange happens. We then go from being those rebels that are under God's wrath to being God's children, heirs, Of eternal life. And of all of the blessings. That are for us in Christ. That is. The good news of the gospel. If we are to take our sin. Turn from it. Bring it to God. God takes it. And as we put our faith in Christ. He gives us. Righteousness. And we now as sinners. Can enter God's presence. Righteous. Able to be. In a reconciled relationship with God. The amazing thing about God's word is. It does two things. Tells us what God is like. But it even reveals to us what we are like. It reveals us to us as much as it reveals God to us. We are very often deceived. About who we really are. We are so full of of this blame-shifting tendency that we are deceived about the nature of our sin. And James does not want us to be deceived. So point number one, when you face temptation, don't shift the blame for your sin. Don't shift the blame. Point number two, verses 16 to 18. Don't question God's goodness. Don't question God's goodness. Let me read verses 16 to 18 again. James chapter 1, 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Let me read again Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when you are tempted, first, don't shift the blame for your sin. Secondly, don't question God's goodness. Don't be deceived. What comes from God is only good, not evil. Second thing that we're tempted to do is to question God's goodness in the midst of trials. What we end up doing in the midst of suffering and trials is to ask the question, how could a good God allow this? This is where our theology can be shaken. This is where often our theology is too small, it's not substantial enough. How could a good God allow this to happen? Really what we're getting at is the so-called problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, if He is sovereign, if He is good, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world and in my life? How could a good God allow this? James, like the rest of the authors of Scripture, will not allow us to hold God culpable for sin. What James says, as the rest of the authors of Scripture say, is that God is the source of everything good. He is the author of everything good, the giver of every good gift. God is sovereign over everything, but he is not responsible for sin and for evil. We take the responsibility for that. We are the ones that brought sin into this, into this world. And this idea, God's sovereignty over everything, and our responsibility for sin is throughout Scripture. One really quick verse to help you see it in one place is the Apostle Peter's message, Acts chapter 2. What Peter says in that message, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, is this, that Jesus was delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus was delivered up to be crucified according to God's definite, sovereign plan. He knew about it, and it isn't that he just knew about it. He planned that his son would die on a bloody cross. This was God's plan. But what Peter says is, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked, by wicked hands. You crucified and killed Jesus by wicked hands. God planned it. It was God's plan that this would happen. He is responsible for sending his son to die. But the sin of nailing the son of God to the cross is the responsibility of the wicked men that did it, and ultimately our responsibility. These two things are throughout Scripture. God is sovereign over everything. But he is not the author. He's not responsible for evil. That's what James is getting at here. Don't question God's goodness in the midst of trials. So how do we know that God is good? How do we know that God is good in the midst of trials? Well, James points us at a couple of things. The first thing that he points us to is the creation. That God is the God of creation. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God created everything and everything good that there is in life comes from God's wonderful, good, creative hand. Every good in your life that you can point to comes to you from God the God of creation, the Father of lights. He created the lights in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars. But he is even more faithful than those lights that give us days and years and seasons. He, unlike our moon, that's constantly changing every day from a big full moon to a slightly lesser full moon, to nothing but a crescent, to a new moon where you see no moon at all. Unlike the the lights in the heavens that are constantly shifting and changing, God gave us the lights. He's faithful like the lights, but he's even more faithful and he doesn't change. Our good God that created everything and has given us everything that is good never changes. So look at creation when you are prone to doubt the goodness of God. Look at all of the good all around you. Look at all of the beauty that there is in this world and that there is in your life. Secondly, when you ask the question, how do we know God is good? What James points to is our new life, our new birth, our salvation. He Gave birth to us. He gave us new life through his life-giving word. Right there in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How do we know that God is good? Look at the cross. God loved humans so much that he sent his own son, Jesus. Jesus to be God in human flesh, to live a life of suffering, to die suffering on a cross, to bring us back to Him. Look at the new life, the new birth that He has worked in you. Look at the gospel. And one last thing to draw your attention to, He says that, he gave us new life. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. What that means, that we are firstfruits of God's creatures, is, is this, that we, the, the new creation in Christ, the new life that we have, is the, the down payment of something much bigger, of a much bigger plan. We are the proof, the evidence that God is going to recreate everything new. He will make all things new. Like He made your heart new, like He gave you spiritual life when you were spiritually dead. He is going to do this on a grand scale throughout the entire universe one day. And we are the proof of that good and wonderful plan. It starts small. In the hearts of a few of us now, it's going to be worked out one day on a grand scale. Don't doubt God's goodness. He has good and wonderful plans to make all things new. The way that he is starting that plan now is with the gospel, the word of truth, that has the power to bring dead men to life. So as we face a new year, We can always look forward with the hope that our good God has much good in store for us, his children. We can always look out on a new year with optimism. That our eternal hope and destiny is good, will be full of joy. But we should also face the new year knowing that we will face difficulties, that we will face trials from God Temptations from Satan. And when you face those trials, take this, take James' far-sighted vision and look a long way down the road at what God has in store for you through these trials. Your maturity, your holiness, and your eternal life. God means your eternal joy. And when you face temptation, don't be unaware of Satan's intentions. He means your eternal ruin and your eternal death. So don't shift the blame for your sin. Admit it. Repent of it. Continue to repent of your sin. Continue to bring it to God. Bring it to God for forgiveness in Christ. And don't doubt God's goodness. He has nothing but good plans for you. Your eternal good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark about ultimate reality. That you don't shy away from speaking about the hard things in life. But You want to make them clear for us. Thank you for trials that test, purify, and perfect our faith. And we pray, Father, that as we face temptations, that we would repent of our sin, that we would trust in your good character and in your good plans for us. Pray that we would be here people of faith who trust in our good and loving God and take this message of life to any that would hear